from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, this week in Princeton, New Jersey. On this week's edition, why green banking is yielding high interest, the growing power of energy productivity, the blockchain's growing appetite for apps, and why solar is suddenly the bee's knees. It's the latest buzz this week on 350. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where energy is viewed as a service, an approach that sets up a wide range of potential energy solutions, all based on the inherent understanding of each customer's energy use. For more information, please visit nrg.com slash greenbiz. It's May 19th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is Green Biz senior writer, Lauren Hepler. How's your week going, Lauren? Hey there. It's going well. Just adjusting to this very foreign concept of a summer break, but you know how it is. <laughs> and per usual, in the middle of about 10 different stories that should be publishing in the next couple of weeks, which is exciting as always. But in the meantime, Joel, I know you are on the East Coast in the famous college town of Princeton. And what's going on there? Well, I'm in Princeton this week because this is the second of the three meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network that we're having during the month of May last week. You may recall I was in Washington, D.C. at the National Geographic Society headquarters. This week, we're meeting at the headquarters of NRG Energy, which is the nation's largest independent power producer. And it's a pretty cool place. This company fairly recently moved into its brand new headquarters. It's a lead platinum building that's got, well, a pretty diverse set of energy features, as you might imagine. Yeah, it's interesting because this facility has definitely been one of the regulars in our green building coverage. But what exactly is it about this facility that's either interesting or new? Well, I think part of it has to do with the progeny of this uh, building. It was designed in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy in 2012, uh, and really I think they broke ground in 2014. And one of the things that Energy was trying to do is they that want they wanted to design and build a space that could withstand the effects of another superstorm, and all while supporting the critical. 24/7 business operations that any big uh, power producer has. And so they've they've woven together uh, in this pretty amazing building uh, a lot of different technologies. Uh, obviously solar PV on the rooftop and in the parking lot that which generates almost a third of the building's energy demand uh, and also provides shade on sunny days. They actually said that solar can exceed 100% of the building's demand, which causes the meter to spin backwards. There is a solar thermal unit on the roof that uses the sun's energy to heat water for the bathrooms and kitchens and fitness center facilities. There's some on-site energy generation storage, a combined heat and power plant. Uh, there's rainwater capture. There's daylight harvesting, a green roof. Um, they really put it all together, and I think that's what makes it interesting. Obviously, this is a company that's in the energy business and wants and needs to, to walk its talk. And uh, I think it's as a result, they've put together a, a pretty spectacular demonstration of what's possible when you bring all of those technologies to one place and and deploy them in uh, even a climate like New Jersey. But enough about me. Uh, you've been traveling a bit yourself this week. What's going on? This is true. I have also been on the road, though, in a very different part of the country. I've actually been sort of road tripping and traveling through Southern California near Los Angeles and over now into the Austin, Texas area. So lots of interesting stuff. Good to get out of the Bay Area bubble. But in the meantime, I know it's been a busy week for everyone. So let's jump right into the week in review. 
since we're on the topic of energy, let's start there. We had a couple of interesting pieces this week about renewables. Um, first of all, uh, the report that came out from uh, my old buddies at, at Clean Edge, which is a research and uh, company that looks at clean energy, um, that looks at uh, the states in the U.S. that are uh, leading the pack. Uh, with clean energy production. And it's some of what you'd expect, um, you know, California and others. Uh, but also Iowa, South Dakota, Kansas are now part of what, uh, what they call the 10% club. They uh, get 30% or more of their electrons from utility scale wind um, and 10% of more or more of the electricity from non-hydro scale renewables. Uh, and then another three states exceed 20% of non-hydro utility scale renewables, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and of course, California, which is often the leader here. Uh, and so this is kind of an interesting look at how this is taking shape in uh, the red, five red states and five blue states that make up the top 10. And I think that's a pretty interesting perspective just in that one little statistic. Yes, this is definitely sort of a departure from a lot of what you might expect in a list of big states for renewable energy. But I think what's really interesting is when you look at sort of the longer term policy picture here, which I think is suggested when you look at the headline, which was navigating clean energy innovation in the age of Trump. And one thing that I'm pretty curious to follow myself is sort of how a couple of states, my home state, Ohio included, neighboring Michigan, um, but also states like California, Hawaii, New York, Oregon, Vermont, are sort of tailoring their state renewable portfolio standards, lovingly referred to as the RPS targets. Um, so you've got a couple like Michigan that is looking to extend its RPS to 15% and others like Ohio just even moving to sort of reconsider this issue of a renewable standard after having frozen the idea in the past. Um, I think this is definitely going to be sort of a fascinating area to, to see how it evolves. And that brings up the other interesting piece this week, which is a, another <laughs> provocative essay by our editor-at-large, David Crane, the former CEO of NRG Energy, where he's looked at what's been going on in the past few weeks in the solar business. Because uh, if you've been following this, Sungevity filed for Chapter 11. Uh, NRG disbanded its uh, home solar subsidiary. A number of solar module manufacturers filed for bankruptcy. Solar City walked away from door-to-door -door sales. And then just this week, uh, Lyndon Rive, who's uh, formerly the CEO of Solar City and, and which became part of Tesla not that long ago, uh, said he's walking away from, from not just from Tesla, but from the industry entirely. And uh, Lyndon and his brother, uh, who are cousins of Elon Musk and uh, who really represent um, some of the leading lights of the industry, is sort of uh, an interesting situation. So David Crane decided to check this out and see what's going on. And what he concluded was that, no, the solar industry is not falling apart. It's going through a shakeup. It's going through some interesting periods. But what it really, it's going to come through this just fine if and when it develops some new business models. He calls it the long tail that's needed for the home solar industry to create a recurring revenue producing service or suite of services that uh, is not just about installation and paying for that installation over 10 or 20 or some number of years. So he talks about uh, solar plus storage or solar plus EV charging and secondary storage or solar plus efficiency in the form of new roof insulation or any number of other combinations. Um, and that's what he's really calling for. Uh, that's what the industry needs to do. And by the way, 
he's saying this is about home solar, residential solar, uh, that the B2B world, I don't think, is affected by this. That seems to be on a nice trajectory. But while we are in the weeds on solar, I do think it's a good time to talk about another piece we ran this week called The Business Case for Pollinator-Friendly Solar Sites that was authored by Steve Levitsky, who's the Vice President of Sustainability for Purdue Farms, along with Brian Riddle of CEO Homestead Gardens. And the idea here is sort of looking at the issue of energy and food and uh, sort of natural ecosystems and how you balance those imperatives. And specifically, this article focuses on the possibility to add pollinator habitat, obviously the concern being that bees and, and pollinators sort of are facing more extreme pressure on their populations with a warming climate than they had in the past. Um, so the idea is that potentially you could uh, address that idea on solar sites. It's already a common practice in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and the authors here argue that this is sort of feasible wherever solar installations are replacing row crops. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to get into the specifics of sort of how you make this work at a, a seed and grass level, um, but the it's sort of something that the UN has been addressing, and I think it's going to be something to keep watching when it comes to thinking about large-scale renewable energy developments, particularly in this case with solar. And uh, states like Maryland and Minnesota are also in play, but also you think of places like the Southwest that are abundant in their sunshine and potential for solar energy. So definitely another thing to keep on the radar. So I'm shifting gears a little bit. I was fascinated with uh, another piece by one of our regular columnists, uh, Alan Atkinson, um, called With the SDGs, Everything is Connected. The SDGs, of course, are the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals that were adopted by uh, 100 or almost 200 nations back in 2015 and are increasingly becoming the focus not just of nations but of companies that are starting to look at these 17 goals and start to act on where companies intersect uh, with the goals and where they become actionable and actually uh, align with with business strategy and, and, and core business value. Uh, that's a really interesting conversation. And and what Alan's talking about is that um, a lot of this is a lot of these goals. Each of the seventeen are being looked at uh, individually, and yet, of course, they're all part of a system. And that we really can't solve them individually necessarily. As he's referring to a study here from the International Council for Science, which is an umbrella organization who are members of uh, world's national scientific bodies. And so I think that's an interesting, and as we look at the sustainable development goals as they start to uh, become more in the mainstream, I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, First of all, uh, you know, is it possible that that the goals are going to set off a, a, a lot of, I don't want to call it greenwash, but at least company claims that are partly true but not entirely true. We're already hearing companies saying, oh, yeah, we're addressing five or seven or ten or all of the 17 goals. And, and of course, they may be in the sense that they have an, an activity that's related to to empowering women or one related to, uh, to water, one related to uh, hunger and, and malnutrition. But it's not just a check-the-box kind of thing. Right. That's definitely something I've been thinking about a lot as well in terms of how companies are going to sort of demonstrate that they're actually making a dent in some of these large macro-scale global challenges we face, whether it's poverty or some of the things you just mentioned, Joel. Um, But 
I think one of the areas to watch here is sort of how companies look to communicate because um, those in sort of like the, the branding or marketing guru space realize that at a certain point you have to put some quantitative, also qualitative data behind these things. Um, and I know folks in sort of the world of corporate reporting are very much thinking about how you go beyond even the things that companies have been integrating in recent years, like a carbon footprint or a water footprint, to start thinking about some of these much more nuanced and complicated gray areas around global sustainable development. So that's definitely one that I will be paying close attention to. As I said earlier, we're meeting uh, this week at the uh, global headquarters for NRG Energy in Princeton, New Jersey, and it's a brand new building. Uh, I'm not even sure if it's been officially christened yet, but uh, we've been uh, gotten a tour and been really to see all of the different energy and other green building attributes. And I thought I'd talk with with Dylan Siegler, who is a sustainability specialist at NRG, to hear a little bit more about the building. Uh, hey, Dylan. Hey, Joel. So you've been in the green building space for a long, long time, and you've watched uh, the, the movement progress. And what do you see when you look at this building uh, in terms of how it fits into where green building is these days? That's a great question. And as you've seen since you got to take a tour, it's an absolutely beautiful space. It is breathtaking in terms of the amount of natural light it gets, and you feel space because it has high ceilings and it's flexible in a way that I think a lot of open office spaces that we're all familiar with in today's workplace are not. So there's lots of places to hide if you want to hide and you know do a call by yourself. There's lots of places to collaborate. We have an innovation lab uh, that is... Uh, a place where people can um, really make it what they want to make it. If you want a conference room, you got a conference room. If you want a playroom, you got a playroom. So, but to answer your question, uh, I think that in terms of how this building fits into kind of the mega trends that we've been following in green building, there are, there are three major ways. The first is in terms of resiliency. The second is in terms of uh, employee well-being. And then the third is the potential to be energy positive. So uh, to give you a little bit of idea of what I mean by resiliency, this is a building that, as I think you mentioned, it's inspired by Hurricane Sandy. So it's made to be a place where not only can we keep our crucial operations running in case of a a severe weather event, but it's a place where we're also trying to mitigate the effects of extreme weather on the community. So we have a living roof that helps with stormwater runoff. We're actually capturing 60,000 gallons of water in our four cisterns that we then use inside the building. So that also helps in terms of preventing flash flooding in the case of, of massive stormwater runoff. And then in terms of employee well-being, I know a lot of your listeners will be familiar with uh, the well-building system and with just general desire as humans to work in places that support us. Yeah, I mean, I think just, I'm not sure everyone is as familiar with well, 
the one of the new standards or just that well building movement as things have gone from green to uh, around the out external environment to what's the impact of human health I, I thought that was one of the really interesting parts just being in here for the past two days and and experiencing and feeling the the quality of air and the lack of fatigue and other things that I think all of us who have been here uh, experience talk a little bit about that part of the movement and then how that relates in this building Sure. Well, I think um, we all are aware of how green building uh, treats environmental impacts. So that's really what green building was always about. But what about the people who work in the spaces? And can our spaces actually help us to be more productive and also to support our you know, life functions like breathing. So we, in this building, are really concerned with the amount of daylight that people are going to get. If they're going to be working long hours, like we do in the energy world, how are your circadian rhythms going to be affected by being in a space? So you'll notice that our trading floor, where folks work long shifts and, and sometimes work weekends, is our our lightest and airiest place in the space, and it's very controllable. So um, folks can actually, using a, a little foot pedal system, can actually change the airflow at their workstation um, without actually affecting their neighbors. So that's pretty cool. Um, I think also... Um, Having something like an on-site gym is a pretty big perk. So we have trainers that are available to work with our employees when they want them. And we also have uh, healthy food in our cafeteria. So, um, you know, just how do we acknowledge that workplaces are actually about people and people are a resource? So you mentioned three things. What was the third one? So the third one is being energy positive. So we have a generation farm is what we call it. So it's got CHP. We've got a couple of kind of demonstration wind turbines. We've got a ton of solar. We've got solar thermal. And then we've got battery storage as well as backup generation. So this building has not only belts and suspenders, but like every other possible way to hold your pants up. Um, so if the power goes out, it's um, never out for more than eight seconds. So it's a way for us to show our customers what's possible in the realm of energy, but it's also a way that we can feed renewable energy back into the grid. So when we are, as we were yesterday, operating at full solar power, but then we're actually generating more, then we're solar positive. We're energy positive, and we're sending, um, we're sending net energy back into the grid. So it's not a, it's not a net uh, zero building, but we are often operating at a surplus. And as many different technologies as are here, there are even some that you thought about and moved on like piezoelectric where you you know the you step over you know in the entryway in the lobby and it powers something were there other things that you sort of thought about that would have been really really cool if you could pull them off where they just either didn't pencil out or work as effectively as you'd want well, as you saw, we um, really managed to pack in a huge amount to this building. And a lot of the cool stuff actually got to stay and didn't get kind of value engineered. Um, one of the pieces that I really love is that waste heat from processes in the building is actually used to be piped under the sidewalks. So nobody has to shovel when there's snow, as there sometimes is in New Jersey. So really, we kind of got the bells and whistles we wanted. Yeah. Well, nice job, and it's a great, as I said, place to hang out. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Dylan Siegler, Sustainability Specialist at NRG Energy. Thanks for having me, Joel. It's been fun. Let's switch gears now and check in on a story we've been following for a year now. 
Last September, we ran a story titled, Is Energy Productivity the Missing Link to the Paris Accord? It was about a group called the EP100, a little-known program that packs a big punch. Uh, the EP100 program, that is short for Energy Productivity 100, was developed by the Climate Group and gets companies to commit to doubling the economic output of every unit of energy consumed. The program was launched in May of 2016 with three companies at the time, and one year later our Green Business Associate Editor, Anya Hollemeiser, has the scoop on how the program has evolved and affected the companies that have jumped on board. So first of all, Anya, how's it going? Pretty great. I'm in the middle of working on our 30 under 30. I'm really excited. We have some amazing honorees that have done incredible work around sustainability. Definitely. Good good note to, to stay tuned for that. 30 Under 30 will be coming up in early June. And for the meantime, I did want to ask you a little bit more about this whole concept of energy productivity. First and foremost, one question I've always had is how energy productivity is different from energy efficiency. Energy productivity is about maximizing the benefit of every unit of energy consumed, not necessarily reducing the amount of energy you use, although that also comes as a side effect. Productivity and efficiency, when it comes to energy use, they're pretty similar, but productivity speaks about being efficient while still making room for evolution and allowing for growth. EP100 was created as a complement to the Climate Group's RE100 program, which gets companies to source 100% sustainable renewable energy. But EP100 has been around as a concept for a while. In 2013, um, former President Barack Obama challenged U.S. citizens, businesses, and communities to double their energy productivity by 2030. And that would save $327 billion in power bills annually, create 1.3 million jobs, and cut carbon dioxide emissions by 33%. That's according to the Alliance to Save Energy. And another report found that energy productivity or EP improvements can account for as much as 45% of gross carbon emissions reduction, which is a key and crucial aspect to getting to the Paris Agreement goals. So because businesses consume so much electricity worldwide, some estimates say half of electricity used around the world, focusing on energy productivity can reduce energy demand globally. And I also like that it's this nonpartisan way to bring sustainability and its um, economic and business benefits to the table. Here's Clay Nessler, Vice President of Global Energy and Sustainability for Johnson Controls Building Efficiency Business. Um, that's one of the first signatories to EP100, discussing what EP100 means to his organization. Energy productivity is a useful metric because it represents the economic output per unit of energy input. Everybody, whether they be a national government, a city, or a private sector organization, wants to increase their economic output, but they also want to minimize the amount of resources required to deliver those outputs. And energy productivity puts both of those factors in one convenient metric that can scale from 0% to 100% and uh, really um, pro provide a key indicator of progress. When I first learned of EP100, I thought this could be a great opportunity for Johnson Controls to again extend its leadership position and give us a longer term goal um, and the recognition that, that would come from achieving that. Research that we do uh, as part of our energy efficiency indicator, which GreenBiz Green has uh, re reported on previously, um, showed that organizations that make public commitments 
invest more in energy efficiency. Um, those that set internal goals invest a little bit more. Those that actually make public goals invest significantly more. And in fact, our research showed that um, organizations that have made public goals to either energy or carbon re reduction um, were twice as likely to have invested in energy efficiency or renewable energy in the previous year and are three times more likely to increase those investments in the future years. So we've been sharing those results and encouraging other companies like Johnson Controls with a global footprint and, and ambitious goals towards the environment to make commitments to EP100. Um, what do we know about other businesses that are maybe considering joining or have joined on board and sort of what are some of the benefits, obstacles, costs for, for companies that decide to, to jump in? The Climate Group makes the case that doubling energy productivity makes companies more resilient, competitive, and energy secure. So early this month, H&M became the first fashion retailer to sign on TP100 and it put out a statement saying that it's going to take several steps to, to reach this goal. It's going to build future stores of 40% less energy per square meter. It's investing in lighting, heating, ventilation, HVAC to improve energy productivity. It's also aiming to include all of its supplier partners um, and enroll them in the energy efficiency program by 2025. It's going to reduce energy and logistics, transport and warehouses, and saying that it's going to be great for the business. Um, and that's H&M uh, is one of 11 new members of o H&M is one of 11 current members of EP100 up from 3 2016. Um, and these businesses come from all different industries, including um, chemicals and materials, automotive parts, tractors, and heavy equipment manufacturers, and retailers. Johnson Controls, uh, one of the oldest signatories, has had great success with the program. Uh, they told We Need Business that it saved more than $100 million in energy costs each year by increasing energy productivity by just two-thirds since 2002. And here's what Clay Nessler told me about what EP100 has done for his company. The energy productivity improvements we've made since 2002 translate into a reduction of our annual energy bill of about $100 million. Um, in other words, if we had not made energy efficiency or productivity improvements, our bill would be $100 million more. And that goes straight to the bottom line. A company with a 10% return on sales would, would have to sell a billion dollars in products and services in order to have the same bottom line impact. So while part of the motivation for um, doing this is, is certainly for the environmental and community benefits, there's also a very large financial benefit as well. I think one of the challenges that m many organizations have when they consider such an aggressive and long-term goal is, is they, 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 have, they may have made improvements um, um, in energy efficiency, harvested some of the low-hanging fruit, as we call it, and they wonder if they can sustain that performance over time. But we've found um, through the two periods of our commitments that we've been able to maintain a relatively constant rate of improvement from 2002 all the way through um, 2016. We've already achieved over that time period a 65% uh, increase in energy productivity. So that puts us on path to meet our EP100 goal of doubling energy productivity from 2009 through 2030. 
That's pretty fascinating. I have to say, though, I am still a little bit curious about sort of the timeline, whether it's renewable energy or energy productivity, sort of these um, higher level concepts. I, I sometimes wonder um, like how quickly companies can really dive in. So what do we know so far when it comes to the EP100 about what a company can do to sort of implement changes or get their feet wet right away? The program commits companies to doubling energy productivity within 25 years. So companies are trying to get a head start, but EP100 is based on making changes that companies can implement quickly. Um, they can um, insulate old pipes and replace end-of-life equipment with the new, most efficient, effective equipment out there. And there are a couple programs out there to help companies assess the changes they can make right away. There's the Energy Productivity Innovation Challenge, or EPIC, which recognizes best in class technology like energy storage or internet of things solutions to, to assess um, and, and see where um, energy is, isn't being used efficiently um, and within business models. Um, and it's better to make these changes right away. A report by the Energy Transition Commission found that energy productivity improvements of a 2.5% to 3% each year are necessary even for economic growth to continue, something companies should consider because Saving, um, saving energy or using it more efficiently um, will save costs in the long run. So you can do more by using what you have or do more with less. So lastly, Clay talked to me about what it takes to engage the organization down to shop employees in the process. The single most important thing we did was we have integrated energy management into our Johnson Controls manufacturing system. That is a, a very robust system of, of processes and best practices that we use to manage the, the safety, the quality, the efficiency of our manufacturing operations. We have applied those processes in the area of energy and sustainability as well. We have something we call Energy Hunt, which is a process that all of our plants around the world implement, and it focuses on five key areas. It focuses on efficient lighting. It focuses on improvements in the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning equipment. It um, focuses on compressed air, which can be a significant uh, waste of, of energy in large manufacturing plants. It focuses on demand management and, and energy information. And finally, it focuses on employee engagement. The shop floor employees really know where the energy is being wasted. And by engaging them directly in the process, they come up with great ideas which can res result in a continuous improvement of energy efficiency over time. A lot of people view these as kind of the low-hanging fruit, but we've found through experience that the fruit grows very fast. And uh, we may have uh, done efficient lighting upgrades five years ago, but now all of a sudden with new LED lighting technology, we can go through again and make the improvements with very short paybacks. Most of the improvements we make within our own facilities are within the two to three year payback time frame that is certainly acceptable to most major corporations. Well, great. The EP100, this is a story we will continue to follow along with the other interesting corporate goals coming out of the Renewable Energy 100 and all kinds of other groups. Um, so Anya Hollemeiser, thanks so much for the update and we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Lauren. Talk to you soon. This episode is sponsored by NRG, 
where customers looking for a renewable energy solution are guided through a range of renewable energy possibilities. Finding the right one means matching what's possible to what's applicable. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz. So this week, we also had a finance dispatch on the trend toward green banking. Our reporter Keith Larson filed a piece called Filling the Gap, Why Demand for Green Banks is Growing. Joining us now is Keith Larson. How's it going, Keith? Good, Lauren. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. And I wanted to start out by sort of just laying the groundwork. Could you break down for us? Um, We've talked about this phenomenon a little bit off and on, but let's be super clear. What is a green bank? So green banks are a relatively new concept. And the first one didn't start till I believe in 2011 in Connecticut. And essentially what a green bank is, is it's a public private institution. So it's not actually like a physical bank, but it's a public finance authority that uses public dollars to leverage greater private investment to accelerate clean energy. More are popping up in certain states, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, and what they essentially try to do is fill these financing gaps that exist in, in the clean energy marketplace for renewable or solar developers or for energy efficiency projects. Say you're, you're a developer and you want to start a large energy efficiency project, but you may not have the upfront cost to, to pay for that. Uh, Green Bay can help finance some of those costs. That's interesting. So you mentioned a couple of specific examples like Connecticut, but given that we're talking about a public-private model, can you break down a little bit further sort of what the public institutions and what sorts of private sector capital or companies tend to be involved in these models? Yeah, so they work with private market participants, which which includes developers. And then you have the other side where, where you have investors looking to help trying to invest in these projects. They use public money. To, to kind of encourage this greater investment in private funds. And the purpose is to kind of gear it up to scale and standardize all this. So it may, for example, be a developer or something that, that may not exactly fit the, the mold where they would get a loan from a commercial bank because maybe they're not large enough or they haven't been. I guess the process hasn't been uh, really up to scale. Mm-hmm. And what about sort of where we are at this specific moment in time? How have we seen the space evolve? Obviously, in recent years, we've, we've gone through sort of these international climate discussions around the Paris Agreement. Um, but now under the Trump administration, clearly the landscape in the U.S. has shifted at least politically a bit. Um, so how are you seeing sort of the significance of, of those events unfolding? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. So... I think that what's interesting about green banks is that it, it kind of shows what is going on in the state and local level. And it, it kind of aligns with the initiatives on the state and local level uh, for their own to encourage clean energy investment and to encourage uh, renewable energy efficiency um, initiatives. And uh, one example of this is um, what, what New York is doing and what, what Governor Cuomo is, is doing. Uh, New York, which is the the clean energy standard, which requires that 50% of New York's electricity comes from renewable energy sources by 2030. And so the green banks kind of align with this broader mission that, that state governments are, are doing. Right, right. That makes sense. But finally, what is the financial scale we're talking about with green banking? How much capital do these institutions tend to have at their disposal? So the Connecticut Green Bank, for example, has great over a billion dollars in total clean energy investment in the state. According to the Coalition for Green Capital, 
and it's only and it's used less than 200 million of, of public capital for that. And the Green Bank has deployed over 106, close to 165 million dollars in, in public capital uh, in 2016. And it's, it's only growing. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the bigger thing with this is that within the case from New York and Connecticut, which I mentioned in the articles, like the the demand seems to be growing and it only seems to be getting bigger. So I, I think that's that's kind of the thing to watch you since it is it is pretty relatively new. So there is it's kind of hard to say as to uh, I guess the success or how much impact it kind of has now. Mm-hmm. Well it's something we'll definitely continue to follow. Green Biz reporter Keith Larson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Lauren. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go, as always, to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode, thanks to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where innovative energy solutions start with a pragmatic mindset, leading to approaches that are sustainable, measurable, and effective. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz.